sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up, Ben Shalom? Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. The show where theology matters. Scholarship counts. Theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg. With me, of course, Rob Van Hoff. What up, brother? How's it going? What up? Scholarship. What, what does what? that mean? That's a good question. We just put it out there, man. <laughs> you figure it out. Yeah. Uh, let's get it all out of the way right now. Scholarship, because not everything people eat is food. There you go. We're we're chefs in a different kind of kitchen. Um, okay, so uh, Torah, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Torah Resource uh, has all sorts of different functions, including Torah Resource Radio, Torah Resource Institute, and our new Torah Resource Library. Come check it out, TorahResource.com. It's also brought to you by YeshuaShirts.com. Start a conversation today, Yeshua Shirts, and to get 10% off, enter the code, what is it, RC Show? Or no, TR Radio, sorry, TR Radio into the coupon box at checkout. And of course, leave us all sorts of messages. You can leave us love notes since it was Valentine's yesterday, or you can tell us how much you hate us, or you can just say hi. And you can do that by calling 253 465 3205. I'll give it to you again. Get your pencil ready. It's 253-465-3205. All right. On to bigger and better things. Before we start anything else, I have to apologize. That's right. As many of you know, you know, a lot of people think that uh, uh, they interpret what I think is insecurity as arrogance, and therefore they think that I think I'm always right, even though I'm not. Most of the time, I'm pretty insecure about a lot of, of things. Um, but it, uh, come to find out I'm actually wrong quite a bit and, uh, this is no exception. Uh, yesterday I got a message from one Lex Myers. Lex Myers runs a, uh, a website called Unlearn. Now, from what I understand, I've actually talked to Lex a lot, uh, over the, the email and whatnot. From what I understand, Lex used to be a pastor. I could be wrong about that. So don't quote me on that, but I think that Lex used to be a pastor. And uh, came to the knowledge of uh, keeping Torah and has been doing so. Uh, he has written a book that uh, I have openly criticized simply because uh, – actually, I shouldn't say necessarily criticized. I haven't actually read the book. when uh, Before his book came out, I actually wrote several blog posts that went up. Uh, and, and Lex and I had some back and forth about those, uh, about those blog posts. But uh, mainly, actually, it wasn't even Lex that was talking to me about those blog posts. It was other people. Uh, because uh, Lex believes in uh, annihilationism. We've talked about this before on the show. Anyway, so yesterday I get this message from uh, Lex Myers, and uh, he, I could tell he was heated. And, uh, you know, the Lord has taught me many things through this. Uh, recently, the Lord has been teaching me not to be as reactionary, uh, instead to try to be more loving in the beginning, something that I did not exercise yesterday with Lex, which is uh, also uh, my fault. 
Uh, but Lex uh, emailed me and said, uh, please quit spreading rumors about me. Somebody told me that uh, you said I was flat earth. I'm not. I haven't decided whether I'm flat earth or not yet. Uh, please don't, you know, don't spread rumors that aren't true. And uh, so I uh, wrote back, instead of keeping my cool and just being uh, like, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. Instead, I wrote a, uh, a reactionary letter quickly that said, uh, I dare you to show me one place that I've actually called you Flat Earth. I said, it seemed as though you were leaning that way. Well, then after a little bit more back and forth, I de decided that I should go look at the show in question. I did go look at the show. Come to find out, I did say that Lex Myers was Flat Earth. Now, on the next show, that was show 146. On the next show, I clarified and said it looked like uh, he was being cryptic, but that uh, does not excuse my misinformation. I was incorrect. I wrongly uh, presumed that Lex Myers was Flat Earth. I did that, I think, because uh, he had posted a picture with Rob Skiba, and uh, he did make a post that seemed to be a little bit cryptic. But However, uh, he did not come out and say that he was Flat Earth. And so I apologize not only to Lex, but to anyone who heard that broadcast. I've pulled all of the show 146 from everywhere that we have posted it. I'm re-editing it and taking that part out. Um, I'm also taking, I've also already taken the part out of uh, show 147, <clears throat> so there will be no record of it whatsoever. I apologize to Lex for misrepresenting him and for uh, jumping to conclusions, which I should not have done. And so I hope that uh, Lex and uh, anyone else who might be with Unlearn will accept my apology. I certainly was in the wrong, and I do apologize. Good enough? Yeah? I think that's uh, yeah. Yeah, a that's fa that's fair, fair enough Fair enough apology. You know, it's ne it's never fun to be wrong. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And mm -hmm. uh, But, uh, you know, honestly, I think the biggest lesson for me was more well well certainly obviously to uh not jump to conclusions about people's theologies but also to uh make sure that uh you know I'm not reactionary so anyway okay let's move on um pj sent us a great description of our show and he he wrote and he said that this is how he describes our show to his family and friends now and and I'm think I read this too, Caleb, and it's what I want to aspire to now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's not that we've always hit this. It's that it. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. we're we're gonna try. We're gonna we're gonna try to conform more to uh, his description of the show, even though I'm not sure if we've really hit it yet. Uh, and this is really an honor to hear him say this. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's very flattering. Um, anyway, he says serious scholarship. Light-hearted humor, honest, Yeshua-based Torah, reverenced, ch uh, chaste delivered, oh, chesed delivered, I'm sorry, chesed delivered, no, uh, no dog in the race dogmatism, no bones to pick theology, themed on challenging heresies and discussing controversies openly to avert false teaching, taking root or rude, earnestly contending for the faith first delivered. That. Oh, yeah. Oof. Thank you. Thank you, PJ, for that. That was, uh, I, you know, can we use that? <laughs> I, I, I already asked him, man. I was like, that is unbelievable. That's what, that is such, I, it's just really helpful. Not, not only that, first of all, thank you to all. We received, you know, I we received some, uh, at least this is on my radar, some really good feedback over the last two weeks. 
particularly the show engaging with the Aish article and then looking into the, the closed mem, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit more today. Yeah. Um, but the, this kind of feedback, the question that, that John gave us that's, that kind of spurred us to do last week's show, um, it, that is, it's just really helpful. It helps us sharpen what, what our goal is and um, helps us find new words, new ways of describing it. And so very, very helpful. Very, well, very a lot of people, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot is that a lot of people think, and, you know, maybe uh, maybe there there's truth to the idea that uh, we've been uh, critical of people before. I've certainly tried to change my tune and be more critical of theology. I don't want to come down on on brothers and sisters in the Lord. However, I do want to talk about theology. And if somebody has bad theology, I don't have a problem talking about bad theology. I certainly don't want to come down on on people, though. Um, even when, uh, and, you know, going back, when I listen to old shows, sometimes I think, man, I shouldn't have said that, or I should I should have said that differently, or, or something like that. Uh, going, you know, I listened to some of the shows recently. I was doing some work on on some of the shows because we, we were adding stuff to the, uh, tor- the new Torah Resource Library. And uh, I was listening to some of the shows that we did on Itzhak Shapira. I was extremely harsh on Itzhak Shapira. In fact, uh, I said that Itzhak Shapira was was uh, teaching a false gospel, and I I said that because uh, he was equating Yeshua with Metatron. Um, as I was listening to that, I was listening for any ad hominem argument that I had put forward. In other words, any argument of you know Itzhak Shapira is a bad person because, or Itzhak Shapira you know isn't a good uh, scholar because, or you know, any of these kind of things. And honestly, uh, you know, from what I was listening to, I'm pretty sure that we stayed on task in terms of attacking the theology. However, I think that some people, when we do that, I think that some people, it registers to people as ad hominem argument, uh, which we're certainly not trying to do. What? Okay, so I want to go back for a few seconds. Now, this actually, uh, I want to I kind of put forward a challenge to some people out there in the Hebrew Roots movement. You know, uh, well, we'll talk about the Hebrew Roots movement in a second. Um, so, I, you know, I was I was looking at, uh, because I was talking to Lex yesterday, and, and uh, I was actually talking to Rico Cortez yesterday as well, uh, something that we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Um, but uh, I was talking to Lex, and I was looking at his uh, website and his, his YouTube channel again, and uh, there was something that, that piqued my interest. It was, uh, did, did Jesus die? It was a, a video, Did Jesus Die on... Good Friday. Now, of course, I think anyone who listens to this show on a regular basis knows that this is very much my headspace right now because I'm writing my thesis on the Last Supper. And of course, to do that, I've had to spend a, a significant amount of the past five months uh, in different scholars' ideas of the uh, chronology of the Last Supper. Now, I'm the first to admit that the uh, Last Supper chronology is is mixed among scholars. So uh, it's not a cut and dry um, but I think that, I, in my opinion, and I could be wrong on this, but I think, in my opinion, newer scholarship is starting to lean towards a specific uh, bent within the uh, chronology of the of the Last Supper. One thing I've noticed now: Lex uh, takes a Johannian uh, chronology, uh, as does Zach Bauer with New to Torah, um, as does One Nineteen Ministries. Okay. And the argument is that uh, Yeshua was crucified on Nisan 14, which would be the preparation day for the Passover. 
Okay, so he was crucified when they're trying to place him crucified when the Passover lambs were crucified for the night of the of of Nisan 14. This would make it so that um, Yeshua's Last Supper was not, in fact, a Passover meal, but was what many scholars call a love meal. Okay, so that's a very, very short introduction. Um, and the one thing that I've noticed is that most of these ministries and most of these guys don't seem to deal with three very specific passages. And I'm, I, I just want to throw these passages out there and ask our listeners or ask anyone out there who's listening, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening or whatever, if you hold to a Johannian chronology, that is that Jesus or Yeshua was crucified on the morning of or the afternoon, 12, 12 o'clock p.m. on Nisan 14. What do you do with these passages? Now, this is before the Last Supper. Matthew, or uh, let's see here. I'm sorry. I'm going to come down here. Am I even in the right document? <laughs> no, I'm not. I apologize. Give me a second. Okay, here we go. So what would you do with these? Matthew 26, 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Yeshua and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is before this is before the Last Supper. Okay, so uh, nowhere I can't find anywhere where the uh, the 13th of Nisan is referred to as the first day of unleavened bread. Now, there are places where uh, the 14th of Nisan is referred to as the first day of unleavened bread. But we have clarification in other in the other synoptics. So Mark 14:12 says on the first day of unleavened bread when they were sacrificing the Passover lambs his disciples said to him, "Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?" Now this is before the last supper. The only time in my opinion that uh, the Passover lambs can be sacrificed is on Nisan 14. They certainly couldn't be sacrificed on Nisan 13. And then also in Luke 22, 7, we have, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lambs had to be sacrificed. So uh, just a little bit of an a inquiry into some of our listeners' idea of, especially those who hold to a Johannine uh, chronology, how do you uh, take the idea that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed on the day that they ate the Passover meal, or the Last Supper, I should say. Okay, that's my... That's my uh, that's my uh, my challenge. Let's move so on. This oh, is kind of what you're just kind of wetting the appetite for in the weeks to come. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be talking more and more about that. So, well, not only that, but, um, you know, since Passover is I mean, it's not too close. It's several months away still. But I'm starting to see people sh- reshare the every year. People reshare the 119 ministry meme of the chronology that they have. And I think they have uh, Yeshua crucified on a we- on Wednesday night or a Thursday morning or something like that. Um, and, and they do this to try to get three days and three nights in, in the, in the grave. Um, and then also, uh, Baruch Hashem. Now there was a lot of debate at the Torah resource office, whether or not, uh, we were going to have, uh, Dr. Petrie on for our Passover special this year. Normally we have my father on to talk about the chronology of the pass of the last supper. Um, this, year we are we've decided that we are going to have Dr. Uh, Brant Petrie on. I have contacted Dr. Petrie. He has agreed to come on to the show on Yay. our Passover special. 
which is really going to be great because uh, his his uh, knowledge of of this I mean this is what his scholarship is is in. Um, he specifically does all of his scholarship that I've read at least. Now I know he's done some other Jesus scholarship, but he's done almost uh, the bulk of his scholarship on the the Last Supper and the Passion chronology. So this is this is going to be a really good one. Um, I said I'd talk for a few seconds about the Hebrew roots. You know, this is just really depressing to me, and, and uh, I'm not going to name any names at all. But one thing that ha- happened yesterday, this is, uh, you know, I was a little on edge yesterday when Lex emailed me, and, uh, you know, that, that's not an excuse at all. But, uh, you know, I've, it was almost, it was depressing and a little bit upsetting. I started doing a little bit of research. I have now found four teachers in the... Hebrew Roots Movement, who uh, refer to themselves as doctor, who either it's an honorary doctorate not earned, or literally they paid money to have a diploma sent to them, a diploma mill. But even the honorary doctorate is not the same as, you know... A fake doctorate? Yeah. I I, I completely agree with you. Who's confers it and for what reason? You know, that's. I agree. There's. I found two. I found two uh, people, two teachers who had honorary doctorates and two teachers who had diploma mill doctorates. In other words, no work was done, or minimal work was done. Usually, like in the in the, you know, the general world of humans and institutions of higher learning, you have, for example, Pat Metheny. He's a he's kind of a fusion jazz guitarist. I'm a big fan. Um, he has an immense body of work that he's produced with a whole bunch of different musicians uh, using uh, different world music, you know, uh, ensembles, everything from or- symphony orchestra to African um, percussion and all these sorts of things and jazz, good old jazz, computer music, all this stuff, and. The Berkeley College of Music in Boston is a very prestigious, uh, pretty intense music school, you know, bestowed on him an honorary doctorate, right? And so it's like legit. It's like what they're doing is they're saying, look, the body of what you've produced over your years is exemplary. And, you know, and they've had him come there and and do teachings and stuff. So it's like a legit situation. Everybody, no matter what angle you look at it from, it's legit. But when 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 you see something that's like, oh yeah, this person's a doctorate, but you can't find out who their advisors were, what their dissertation was, you can't even find the school that bestowed it, and they're teaching stuff that you're like, what? Yeah. Why do they put the name in front of them? What? And so there is something awry. <laughs> that's. I don't get it. So can I just address something in the chat room real quick? Philip uh, brings up a really good point, and this is absolutely true. Uh, Philip says the challenge – this is back to the pa- Passover chronology. And I don't want to make this a pa- uh, point of, of, of topic today, but he says the challenge is the, is the, uh, the rather use language, which is still evident in Jewish speech around Passover instead of – hang on – instead of – distinguishing between Pesach and unleavened bread, it all gets confused. Hence, Passover lamb 
could also refer to the morning and evening lambs offered in the temple throughout the week of unleavened bread. You're absolutely right. And this is uh, one of the things that the, that the Passover hypothesis actually hinges on. I agree with you, Philip. However, even if we accept, even if, let's just accept that, that Passover lambs can refer to the Passover lambs sacrificed throughout the week. Which in case is not even just lambs then, because in Deuteronomy Correct. 16, it, it could be... Yeah, the, the, pa- the Pascha... Okay. The Pascha can be can refer to any of the sacrifices that are sacrificed during the week of Passover. However, if you take the Johannian chronology on the him dying on the fourteenth, then if the Synoptic Gospels are having him on the thirteenth of Nisan before his meal, uh, if they're saying that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed, that's still not within the week. That's still not within the Passover week, and therefore. The passages I brought up still do not relate to the 13th of Nisan. That would just be a sacrifice. It wouldn't be a Passover sacrifice. This is one of the big problems that we have with the Johannian uh, chronology. Basically, most scholars, um, uh, most scholars who uh, who hold to a Johannian chronology, actually say that the Synoptic Gospels are not historically accurate. That it was it was put in later. Right. That the synoptic gospel. Well, and they're reading John a certain way. This is not the. They're, when they say Johannine, that's. Caleb, you're just using that as the code word that they use. You're not Correct. agreeing that. Because, you, okay, because there's more than one way we can read these texts, and that that's what you're going to get into. Yes, yes. In the thesis, et cetera. Yes. Okay, Good. let's move on. I want to talk about. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Somebody posted something, and it was this uh, retrial of, of Yeshua, this retrial of Jesus. Now, I've put this, uh, I put a link in here in your show notes for you. Um, I said, I don't get it. What's the point on, on somebody's post? And uh, they deleted my comment, but some other people saw it first, and some people responded. One guy said, Caleb, you have to be joking. I said, uh, another person said, he's just trying to debate, you know, so on and so forth. I said, I don't want to debate. And I'm not trying to be rude or argumentative. I'm simply not sure what the goal is. We have been set free by the innocent lamb being led to, the, to his death. It is an honest question. And I'm simply trying to understand what the goal is. I'm sorry if you have found me rude, but it, ha, 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 it, but it is an honest question. Now, Rico Cortez wrote back and he said, actually, this is a very important step because of Kavod ve Bouchard, honor and shame. Now, I contacted Rico because of his comment and asked him privately, I said, uh, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about why you think this is important. Now, some other people express this to me as well. I'd like to talk about this. We have a couple of, uh, we have a couple of clips here. Um, let's start with a couple of clips and then, uh, you know, so Rico brings up some good points and, and I'm not discounting him or the other people who Basically, the argument is is that this is going to bring a uh, an awareness to the Orthodox Jews. It's going to open up the conversation about uh, about Yeshua, and uh, it'll be a, a, a good way for us to evangelize and and minister and even get the conversation going even about Yeshua with Orthodox Jewish brothers and sisters. Listen to some of the. Now, this is uh, one of the news. Uh, one of the the news articles had a video. It's 35 minutes long. I started pulling a ton of clips from it, and I just decided, you know what, we'll just, we'll just keep two clips. Um, so here is the first one. Before the second coming of Jesus, 
there's a certain condition outlined in the Bible that must be fulfilled. Jesus himself cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you can say, Baruch haba Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is still waiting after 2,000 years for his Jewish people to summons him and to welcome him back. And that might be about to happen much sooner than you think. Okay, so now I'm not trying to uh, say that this lady on this show represents people like Rico Cortez or represents the person who... Who, who are we listening to, by the way, there? Uh, she says her name in the beginning of the next clip. Let's just listen to her name and then I'll okay. stop it real quick and we can talk about it. Hello, I'm Christine Darg. Christine Darg. Now, I, uh, we can look, actually, let's just go to this uh, this link that I have posted in the show notes here. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, I, I'm not familiar with that, with her name. So this is, uh, this this article is posted by WND, which uh, a lot of what they post oh. is... Oh, would, that's uh, Farah. Yeah, so... And, and I, yeah, Chuck Bissler's in with him, and uh, yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I didn't, I don't know any of that, but I know that uh, WND a lot of the time puts forward stuff that is... Ridiculous. So I don't consider them a. They're, they have millions and millions of, of followers. Oh, I'm sure they do. I, I fake news is kind of how I see it. It's a lot of uh, clickbait in my in my opinion. Um, but this is this specific article. I'm not saying that about this article. I'm just saying that about WND in, in general. Uh, this this uh, specific article is by Bob Unra. I don't know who that is. Um, and it looks like. Uh, this lady who's speaking is on the Jerusalem channel. I'm going to guess that this is a channel in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem channel TV. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a, uh, a Vimeo. But, uh, but uh, so, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's what we're listening to. Now, I'm not trying to say that this, this uh, lady on the Jerusalem channel is, is representing the people who posted this or, uh, you know, that I interacted with or that she's representing the views of Rico Cortez in any way, shape, or form. Please don't hear me say that. Um, but it seems to me that what this lady is saying is that what a retrial of Yeshua might do is is uh, will change the minds of the Jewish people and that the Jewish people will say, Baruch Hashem Adonai, and this will trigger, this will uh, pave the way for the Messiah to then be able to, to return. Is that how you heard that? That's I mean, that's kind of how I heard it. So what I heard her say is Jesus is waiting Yes. For um, all of Israel to say welcome to him, Baruch Abba. Or at least a majority, right? At least a majority. uh, Or a majority, and then at that time he will come. So, you know, everything is in the hands of men here to do that. Um, And I've I've heard that taught before, and and I've heard it in Messianic circles, uh, particularly that this weeping over Jerusalem when he quotes, by the way, that Psalm uh, 118, this is a place, you know, where we see that, Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai, Psalm 118. It's right after where he says, Evan Ma'asu Habonim Haita Rosh Pina, the stone that the builders rejected mm-hmm. has, has become the chief. The chief um, stone, yeah. 
Yeah, and 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 all this, and he's talking about that he he's Yeshua, uh, or that Yeshua's teaching that he is the stone. Sure, right? he's sure, the son. Sure. The problem with reading verse twenty six the way they do is you got to read the whole verse. Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, and then it says, Berach Nuchem Mebeit Adonai. We bless you all. We bless you all. Chem, from the house of the Lord. It's not just, it, it, the, when Yeshua says, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, it's when Jerusalem accepts not just Yeshua, but all his disciples from all the nations of the world. Mm-hmm. That their prayers are acceptable on the altar. It's, it's not just, it's not like the Jew, they're just waiting for the Jews to recognize Yeshua. Mm-hmm. There's been, there's been uh, Yeshua uh, available through his disciples for 2,000 years have been, you know, uh, generation after generation of, of faithful followers of Yeshua have been on the earth testifying to the truth so any kind of, the whole thing of the retrial, first of all, when do you have a retrial? You have a retrial when there was a guilty verdict that, there, that there's been new information about, right? Or there's, is there a, you know, are they going to say it was invalid? You know, all, all these sorts of things. And this, to me, it seems like another sensationalist kind of uh, rallying point that really is not going to produce what it seems like they wanted to produce. One of the key things you need in a court is witnesses. What are their witnesses going to be? Are their witnesses going to be the accounts in the Gospels? Are they going? Are those going to be accepted testimony? Well, okay, I know, okay, wait, hang, hang on. And that is a great point, and and you're you're really hitting on something here. But I want to listen to this next clip first uh, before before we get into the reasons why I. I personally think that not only is this uh, not going to be a good, this is not going to be a good platform to help witness. I actually think that this is going to be detrimental. And I think it's going to hurt more than it will. Uh, no, Here's what, but Caleb, let me ask you this. What if, what if you get all these believers are on board for this retrial and then they find him guilty again of blasphemy? But that's my point, is that I think... What, what my, are they going to do? Are they going to accept the verdict? I, I don't. I mean, just what's the what? Who benefits? Uh, well, who, and, and well, yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I uh, there's in my mind, there's absolutely no way. I I certainly don't know if people think that he's going to be found innocent. That believers think that he's going to be found innocent. In my opinion, there's absolutely no way, shape, or form that the, the that the rabbis uh, the ten uh, leading Orthodox rabbis in Jerusalem are going to find Yeshua innocent. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's listen to this next clip first, and and but maybe that's not the point. Maybe maybe what uh, believers are saying. Let's give the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe and what I've heard people saying is that that it doesn't necessarily matter if he is found guilty or not. It'll open up conversation. So at least we'll be able to talk. Right, let's listen to this next clip. Hello, I'm Christine Darg. There's growing anticipation that the stage is being set for Yeshua's reception back to Jerusalem. One of the recent speakers at our Jerusalem convocation. Okay, first of all, I don't think that Yeshua needs to be, you know, he's never been outside the fold of of, uh, of his people. His people might be playing the harlot or they might be uh, rejecting him as the Messiah. But 
Yeshua doesn't need to be accepted back into the fold of his people. They need to be accepted back to the Messiah, right? Paul tells yeah, us that I, the, the, bran the branches are broken off. And that the, br the branches are grafted back in. In, in those who those who reject the Messiah, it seems to me, need to be grafted back in. Not that they need to that they need to somehow accept the Messiah back into their fold. Right. The true verdict. Every every time, the, someone from the stock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Adam hit the nail faith, on the head. Comes, comes to faith in Yeshua. There is no that that they have to rethink their their inherited uh, Talmudic, you know, and all the stories about Yeshua. They now bear that shame, but they gladly do it. You know, some of them are are considered dead to their families because they now believe in Yeshua. But that's the victory of that's the victory of Yeshua in the life of individual people uh, who are Jewish. You know, um, if you have an uh, a I don't know some sort of Sanhedrin. I mean, there's a what what who. Who, what's the authority? Who's going to be on this judicial uh, body? What's their authority? And who who is obligated to follow their ruling? Okay, hang on. Pull, pull, your, mic, like it's pull, pull your mic back just a little bit from your mouth, just a little bit. Um, Adam says in the chat room, haven't we already discussed this when we talked about Alaro? Uh, we can't pull anything over on the original 36. Um, yes, we have talked about this before, but hang with us for a second was reception back to Jerusalem. One of the recent speakers at our Jerusalem convocations was Rabbi Ariel Cohen Oyoro. Rabbi Ariel is an Orthodox Jew who believes that he must help to facilitate the second coming of Jesus. That's the most unexpected initiative I've heard in a long time. Rabbi Ariel is not an ordained rabbi, yet friends and colleagues call him rabbi Okay, right there, this is very important. And the reason why is because the Orthodox rabbis, the head Orthodox rabbis that he's trying to get together to form this judicial committee are not going to accept his what he's saying because he's not an, a rabbi. He's just a student. He doesn't know. He's a recognized expert in the Jewish world on finding hidden meanings in Bible codes. In doing these word studies for many years... Rabbi Ariel has developed the perspective of a Jewish Orthodox scholar to focus on the specific subject of identifying Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And he does this strictly from a Jewish perspective. He insists he's not a missionary. He's not messianic. He's from the very Orthodox Hasidic stream of Judaism. And it's his very great ambition to reintroduce Jesus to the Jewish people. Just a real quick note. You know, I found his bio. He, uh, specific, Alaro specifically says uh, that he went to uh, the Chabad in, in uh, New York and, and studied there for a little while. Uh, but then it says that he came back and he studied, studied under one of Israel's leading rabbis. I cannot find anywhere where he says who that rabbi is. And I wish I could because I want to know. That's quite an astounding and highly controversial ambition. And to make this even more startling to those of us in the Christian world, Rabbi Ariel intends to exonerate Jesus from the false charge of blasphemy 
by actually staging a public retrial of Jesus. Okay. So here's and, – and you started to hit on this. I'll let, you, I'll let you take over because you were making this point. But the, the, the biggest point that I see is that for Orthodox Jews to try to be – even if – let's say Alaro is the one who's going to take up this cause. By the way, we know that Alaro uh, believes Yeshua to be the reincarnation of King David. We know that Alaro says that everyone is, uh, is a god and um, – no one is Jews. Uh, only Jews. Oh, yeah, only Jews. But they're all, we're all gods, and and that uh, and that Jesus didn't claim to be divine, right? Um, so, I, why anyone would want this person to represent Yeshua at a retrial is beyond me. But the but the biggest point to me is that you're right, Rob. I, I'm in complete agreement with what you were starting to say. There's no way that these people, that these rabbis are going to find him innocent, first of all. And the reason why is because if Alaro attempts to show from the apostolic scriptures of the New Testament that Yeshua is innocent, why would they accept that? The Talmud is a sacred book to the Jewish people, right? Handed down from the rabbis and sanctioned by the Almighty. We know that whether or not the Hebrew roots of the Messianics or even the Christians want to agree with the idea that, uh, that uh, the Talmud says that Yeshua was, was crucified on the night of Pass- or, uh, on the eve of Passover, he was hung on a tree uh, for performing uh, sorcery, right? Right. That's and enticing, enticing Israel to sin or idolatry. Basically. Yeah. So even if even if you want to, even if you don't believe that that's speaking about Yeshua of the Gospels, the Orthodox traditionally do believe that is speaking of Yeshua. Right. So basically, if, if imagine this, a, a Laurel's going to uh, uh, go. What other sources? What are his te- what what are his witnesses? Unless he's going to go to the text of the Gospels themselves. And then are they going to say, okay, yeah, we're going to we're going to accept the ruling of the Gospels, and we're going to undermine our own Talmudic tradition and rabbinic tradition that paints Yeshua as a as an enticer to idolatry, as a uh, sorcerer? Well, look, and um, you're absolutely- yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big issue. Not only that, not only that, the Talmud itself, in order a, a legitimate Sanhedrin, you have to have they have to be fluent in all in the languages of the world. So not only that, now you enter in this debate, if they're going to have it proper, they have to have someone who, who is fluent in Koine Greek and understands the text traditions of the witnesses that they're going to bring to qualify as evidence before the court. And they're going to have to – and it can't just be one person. So they need multiple people who are fluent in Koine Greek who can testify to what the Gospels are. If they if they take a different angle, say it was originally written in Hebrew, now they're in speculation land, and they don't. You, that's not admissible to a court of law. Speculation. You need hard evidence. Not only that, if you accept the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Cohen Gadol says to him, "This is Matthew twenty six. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Messiah, Son of God." Yeshua said to him, "You have said it yourself." Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see, and he quotes Daniel 7, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. The Kohen Gadol tore his robe and said he has blasphemed. What further do we, witnesses do we need? And that's when they, they condemn him to death. Okay, what, so you're going to say the Kohen Gadol, I mean, it, it, it undermines so many things. Here's another problem, is that Aloro draws on the Mishnah 
in his gematria. Like it's not gematria for Aloro is not just for the Tanakh. He uses gematria for understanding everything, finding codes in the Mishnah. So when he he starts now imposing Mishnaic law anachronistically, because I mean, you look in Sanhedrin, but I mean, even even the top Jewish legal experts today are not in agreement on to the degree that uh, uh, Masechet Sanhedrin, which is the, the Mishnaic law of of setting up court, particularly to uh, capital cases, death penalty, that it doesn't apply to for, to the first century because it's it was developed later, under when when after the temple was destroyed. So, uh, what is your legal the very idea that Orthodox rabbis are going to have a retrial of Yeshua will expose? It'll be a farce. Because it'll expose a bunch of false assumptions that the that laws of the Mishnah, the laws that undergird rabbinic authority as conceived today, somehow apply to the first century trial of Yeshua. There's anachronism right there. The use of gematria is is absolutely crazy. And Aloro using trying to paint Esau as Christianity and Jacob as Jews, and yeah. somehow he needs to reunite. It's false eschatology. So his whole premise is false eschatology, mm-hmm. uh, gematria, mm-hmm. anachronism. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. The Gospels, you know, any, any Jew for the last 2,000 years could have access to the Gospels. That's why Yeshua is, is faithful and preserves his word in the world so that uh, all mankind can come and read and be convicted by the Holy Spirit of the truth of the Gospels. They don't need a, some court to— they're not going to be able to decide anything. It's whatever they decide. I, I, I agree with you. The other thing that I'd point out is that uh, throughout history, and especially now within the past, you know, uh, even 20, 30 years, we've seen a rise in anti-missionaries, and the rise and the anti-missionaries are very, very uh, good at trying to convince people that the that the Gospels and the New Testament in general is not historically accurate. So the idea that all they of have, right it, it, before they can even in other words, here's the thing. What's the, their source the court, text? Exactly. The court has to evaluate what it's going to accept as evidence yeah. and what it won't accept. Right? That's the first thing. Well, plus, they have to say—now, she alluded that the guilty verdict of blasphemy is the specific charge that Alora wants to take away. And it, it, from what I know, my limited knowledge of listening to Aloro and and uh, what this gal just says— is that basically what you said, Caleb? That oh, when he said he was the son of God, he just meant like all Jews are the son of God, yes. right? I mean, he's yes. he's going to try to offer an alternative interpretation would you, would you, would of you the like, gospel. Let's let's listen to it. Let's listen to what Alaro says about that. Um, one of the biggest stumbling blocks in the final reconciliation. Now we've been cri- we were critical of of, of uh, Cortez on this. However, I. Now that I listen to this, uh, him ask this question, he's tr- he is, Cortez is attempting to get to the heart of the issue of the deity of the Messiah when it comes to Alaro. That's what Cortez is pushing for here, and I respect him for it. This is, Cortez is going in the right direction here. One of the biggest stumbling blocks in the final reconciliation is the 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 identity of Mashiach or Yeshua. I believe that Yeshua is Malach Elohim. He's the messenger of the covenant. Uh, I do believe. He is pre-existent. You know, he's not just a man. Many people, that will be a stumbling block 
uh, in the reconciliation because because of the misunderstanding from from Christianity and their perception of you know who who the Father is and, and who the Son is. Mm. How would you reconcile right. the identity of Mashiach as from the beginning? Okay, we have to understand first of all that when they when they uh, say to 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 Yeshua the Poshim, why you make yourself God, he give he gives the right answer in the most higher level that you can be done. He say you are all God. Elokim atem, meilion kolchem, like it's it's saying teilim. It means in the moment we understand that every Jewish is son of God and God. It's two different concepts. Mm -hmm. Every Jewish. No problem to think that Jesus is God as well. In the moment you think that only Jesus is God or Son of God, you have a problem. So I think from the from the from his own mouth, Alaro is, is. So yeah. So what what's so so Alaro? If let let's imagine now this is just imaginary. Let's hypothesize that this court retrial is set up. Alaro's there to present his case. That we're just hearing the we're hearing the core of it right there in that clip. He's going to present that case to this. Uh, uh, panel of rabbis and he's going to say just like in Tehillim Elohim Atem you are all Elohim mm -hmm. um, so too so we can't accuse Yeshua of blasphemy because we're all Elohim that's what he's saying right so in so doing he's hoping it sounds to remove this okay it's not blasphemy but what they're really saying it's not blasphemy for for Orthodox Jews to call themselves Elohim that that's real. Yeah, Yeshua is not special. We're all Elohim. And that and then somehow that's that retrial of Yeshua is going to uh, facilitate discussion. We don't need discussion facilitated. I mean, there's they know the Gospels, right? I mean that. They've read the New Testament. Well, maybe maybe, the, maybe some have, maybe some haven't. You know, look, no. I, I agree that I agree, and and uh, Cortez said, "Hey, man, why don't you just wait and see what happens?" Okay, I agree that the that the Almighty can use whatever mean he means he wants to. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but th uh, you know, I would also you know, um, there are there are certain Messianic and Hebrew roots ministries. Uh, Rico Cortez specifically has said. Now, I think he's talking about, uh, like, Jews for Jesus evangelism, but he's saying that, uh, you know, we're not going to use that kind of evangelism in, in Israel to try to, to evangelize the Jews. Well, why not? If God can use any means necessary, and the reason why is because some things are going to turn people off more, and some things are going to be more detrimental and not going to help. And in my opinion, this is one of them. This is one of the things that is going to be a disaster. However, if you disagree with me, and I... I I'm all for that. If you disagree with me, I have uh, just now created a survey on my Twitter account. You can go to my Twitter account at Caleb Hag if you have a, <laughs> if you have a Twitter account. You can go there. Uh, the question is: Should believers get behind a retrial of Jesus in Israel by Orthodox rabbis? Your option: You have three options. You can vote yes, no, or it doesn't matter. Let me know what you think. It'll run for three days. We will uh, give you the results on the next show. Okay, well, we've talked, that was supposed to be a five to ten minute segment. We have now talked for 50 minutes in total, uh, which is totally fine. That's that's good. That's what we like to do here. We like to uh, try to hash things out, and I hope that this conversation has been good. But I want to get back for a few seconds. So, now, last week, uh, we talked 
at length about the uh, – by the way, I would like to thank PJ for posting this article. I have not read this article. However, I'm excited to do so. Um, thank you for posting that in the, in the chat room. Now, last week we talked about Isaiah 9-7. <clears throat> and, yes, I'm, I'm not sure why people keep saying it wasn't 7. I we, we get it. We know it wasn't 7. Maybe people are still watching the show before. Anyway, um, so in Isaiah 9-7, there is a uh, there is a closed mem that is a final mem in the, in what looks like the middle of the Isaiah word. Isaiah 9. I, yeah, I know, what did I say? I thought you just said 7 again. Oh, I, I apologize. Uh, Isaiah 9-7, yeah. but it's Isaiah 9-7. Oh, oh, you did say that. That's where I heard the 7. Okay, yeah, yeah so 9-7 is, is, is where— My brain scrambled on this whole thing. That's okay. Uh, that's where the that's where it is is uh, Isaiah nine seven and there's uh, what now what I want to do is I we have one page left, <clears throat> but we get yeah and, but can we go back to the question? the reason we zeroed in on this last week and this is a learning curve for us so appreciate your patience because we're kind of pushing with last week's show we pushed beyond normally what we do we had a like a five page handout that you needed to download and we tried to go through it and it wasn't I, I didn't set it up real well with with the key points up front. And so it felt a little bit like wandering through the trees and where people needed to see the map of where the forest was, you know, and, and be able to locate where we were. So that was my bad. I appreciate the, your patience with me and helping me well, and, remember and, to do that. And PJ, but I, hey, wait, hang on. PJ actually uh, also gave us this. He said uh, the way that, that uh, would be helpful to everyone else to listen to it is point, reason, proof. In other words, make the point, give the reason, then show the proof. And so uh, maybe and that's, that's that's wonderful advice. That's yeah, maybe I'm that's saying. the model that we'll we'll go with here. So uh, now I want to lead you into this a little bit. We well, to set let I I wanted to, before you do that. Go ahead. Remember, it was that we got a Facebook post from from one of our listeners, John, because Caleb had made a comment. Because remember, the whole context is this H yes. article. Yeah. And John asked, why would this be significant for messianics? Why are you accepting this memsophete as having meaning? So John's question to Caleb was, because Caleb had made a comment concerning the virgin birth about this Isaiah passage with the closed mem or the mem, the final mem in the middle of the word. And that kind of spurred an investigation into this whole history. But uh, I heard from John the other day, he said he didn't think we actually ever answered that specific question, although he appreciated the whole dive into the history. He got the impression, Caleb, that you were accepting this memsophete mm -mm. as having meaning for messianics. No, okay, and and let me let me just talk to this, uh, speak to this specific point real quick. I, I think we covered this last week, but we'll cover it again for John. <clears throat> I actually don't think that the that that memsophete in the middle of the word has any special significant meanings. In fact, I think that uh, that Rob's uh, proved or showed last week that this was. Probably two words that have been combined into one. Not the point. My point is, is that I don't, I don't, I don't find any specific meaning. I don't think that Isaiah nine seven shows that uh, the the uh, Messiah would come from a virgin. I don't believe that uh, even if it was originally one word. I don't think that this uh, gives us some special hidden code. What I'm saying is, is that from what I had understood, and I think I've been proven wrong. Perhaps, maybe, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. Uh, what I had understood was that the rabbis had taught that. And my point was that if the rabbis are going to say, no, we've never said that the, the Messiah would come from a virgin birth, and that Isaiah 714, where it says Alma, that couldn't refer to a virgin, 
Well, you're not being completely honest. First of all, because of the Septuagint reading of Isaiah 7.14, right? But also because the rabbis, at least from what I had understood before, before we did this investigation into this, what I had understood was that the rabbis did teach that that uh, Isaiah 9.7 uh, spoke uh, this this letter proved a virgin birth. Not that I believe that, but what I was trying to sh- show was that it's inconsistent. If the rabbis did say that that this showed that the Messiah was coming from a virgin, and this other rabbi saying no, we've never taught that. That's inconsistency. Not that I take that. Not that I take that Mem Sofit to be a special character. Did did I explain that well? Can someone in the chat room tell me if? No, I think that's good. I, I think that's good. I think uh, I think that is helpful. I think you answered the question the way I understood him to be asking it, because you were under the impression that the rabbis attributed the significance and that that uh, attribution could conflict with their own claim that there's no virgin birth. I I get it. Okay, wait, hang on just a sec. I'm sorry. I'm just now seeing this comment in the uh, in the chat chat room. Uh, somebody wants me to explain Jews for Jesus. This goes back to what we were talking about uh, with the Alara thing. But I, I think really uh, you're talking about the ev- evangelism of Jews for Jesus in, in Israel. So I referenced Jews for Jesus evangelizing in Israel. Um, that is that they set up these little booths. I'm sorry. Well, maybe I'll have to splice this back in. But um, that they sli- they set up these little booths or whatever. <clears throat> and then they <clears> – excuse me. They attempt to get uh, Jewish people into uh, – Almost confrontational uh, debates uh, on the street with with uh, with their teams. So you have these Christian believers who used to be Jews who are now Christians, and they try to tell them that they're set free from the law and all these kind of things. Um, and in Israel, they're called missionaries, and the Jews essentially hate the missionaries. And so, what I was trying to reference was that um, you know uh, some groups are saying we shouldn't be doing this, and uh, but. Why not? If it's a way to reach, you know, if God can use anything, why wouldn't you want to do it? That was my point. Um, I don't have anything necessarily against Jews for Jesus, except for the fact that they say that Jews are set free from the law. So one of the first things a lot of them do is try to get Jews to eat pork once they accept the Messiah. Um, So I think that's detrimental. Um, I think that they're trying to do what they think God has told them, but I think they're off. Anyway, okay. I'm sorry. That was a total rabbit trail. In a kind of a rant. So let's get back now to, now I want you to explain, give us the point first, and then and then let's go back into the evidence and wrap up what, some new evidence has come to light. I think you were sent something this week. Also, the last bit of, of we didn't get to the last page of this, and I'm going to, I'm not even going to look at the page, so I want to listen as if uh, I'm listening without looking at the page, so that maybe we can Oh, okay, get okay, so... It- Okay, so the po- the core point of all this, why are we looking at all this, is because there is in Isaiah 9 this word that has an unexpected uh, spelling. It's got a, the letter mem, which is the letter M in Hebrew, has uh, two different forms. There's a special form, like there's a handful of, uh, of letters in Hebrew, that when they are at the end of a word, they have a unique shape, a unique form. Never do you see one of these letters that has its ending form, what we call our, its sophit form, its end form, in the middle of a word. Well, until here, until Isaiah 9, where we have this word lemarbe, where the mem in the uh, second letter of the word actually is a 
a memsophete form. It's it's the form that you would expect only at the end of the letter. And so that's kind of that's what we're looking at. Then the initial point is that there is a lot of history telling why this is, trying to explain. There's a whole a bunch of lore that has developed around explaining this mysterious spelling that we have, this unexpected mysterious uh, spelling. And that lore, just Caleb, as you pointed out, uh, includes uh, some vague association with a virgin birth. Of the um, Messiah? Of the Messiah? Of, well, just of a virgin birth initially, which is one of the things that informed, I think, your uh, uh, opinion that you shared a few weeks ago. If that's the case, why, you know, if this does have some talk about a virgin birth, then why would the rabbis be so opposed to a virgin birth and so on and so forth? So the main point is we're, we're talking about this closed mem in this word, Lemar Bay, and we are saying uh, that you've heard it said that this has specific messianic meaning. What I wanted to point out, and, and there's no way to do it except to kind of take a tour through the, through the garden, so to speak, and, and look at all the different uh, uh, expressions in the scribal world, in the rabbinic world, and in the later commentator world, and even in the later Kabbalist world, uh, about this this odd feature of this book uh, in this book of Isaiah, and to recognize over chronology from a chronological organization perspective that the it's not just a, a single idea that is that that the lore is quite diverse. It's not just messianic. It's uh, that we actually do see at a certain time in the later Middle Ages. Um, a polemic about whether this closed mem refers to a virgin womb or not, but it does seem to be rejected, like it's entertained as a possibility, but then rejected, uh, probably in polemic with Christian, uh, uh, contemporary Christian scholars that are arguing that it is pointing to, to a virgin womb. But, but what we see with, with the unfolding of what I tried to do with the handout is to show that over time you see it go from nothing to this huge, uh, you know, uh, body of lore, like I'm calling, or of legend, or or whatever, that is given quite a bit of significance. And one thing you can be sure is that it's it's uh, in future printings of the of the Bible, the rabbis are always going to have a closed mem there. The yeah. closed mem is is not going away. It's yeah, it's, it's there for uh, it's there for good. It, it's there for good from here on out. Yeah. But what we do have, uh, when we look, it wasn't always there, right? I mean, we have the, the Qumran scroll of Isaiah is the is the earliest Jewish text of Isaiah that we have, and it's clearly a, a standard open mem. Um, and, and so the advantage, you know, what I w- was trying to accomplish with that handout is to show that chronological development of the ideas and to also try to help people see a little bit about who was saying what when. We have, we have a, a number of streams that emerge. We have, the, what are the scribes doing? Well, we see with the scribes, they have a particular thing they're saying. They're saying it's actually originally two words, read it as one. Basically, nothing to see here, just keep reading, right? The scribes don't have any um, midrashic agenda in this case, right? They're, they're accountants. Right, they're just accounting 
for the letters, trying to preserve what they've should, seen. Should we should we explain that maybe just a little bit? So, for instance, sure. in, in the uh, in the apostolic scriptures, in the New Testament, it seems like uh, a lot of the time when you have Pharisees around, you have the scribes and the Pharisees. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Now, I've I've heard you argue that maybe this was because the Pharisees needed the scribes around because the they knew the Bible really well. So they would uh, tell me if tell me if I'm yeah, off it's point. Not that they, it's not that they were always around together. It's just that they scribes and Pharisees are not the same social group. Now there could have been scribes that were Pharisees. I'm not I'm not saying that. Sure, be. sure, sure. But a scribe is a different office, particularly uh, in the Second Temple period. The scribes were, for the most part, they they had a steady job. They had a steady gig in terms of being on retainer, um, and their education was was necessary. Um, the copying script, you know, copying not only scriptures but documents such as, you know, maybe a mezuzah or a, a marriage, uh, a ketubah, right, or a uh, tefillin. You know, scribes are doing all these kinds of things, uh, also copying Torah scrolls. But they're doing it with the endorsement of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't need to argue for their own existence. Pharisees, yeah. Pharisees, on the other hand, have to always argue why you should listen to them. Why are the, why, now? Why should I listen to you? You're right, because they're not endorsed by the state. They, they, you know, Sadducees. There's competition between different Jewish groups, but the scribes are the scribes are the scribes for the most part. And this is I, I acknowledge I'm using broad brushstrokes here, but. But basically, and the and this is what I tried to point out, and in, in I think it was my 2000, uh, 2015 SBL presentation, was that that these trajectories become more and more clear over time. By the by, the year one thousand, for example, you have two basically different kinds of text products among Israel uh, devoted Israelites, devoted Jews, the text product of the scribes, which is the Masora. And the text product that we call the Talmud and the Midrashim, sure. and they, the aims and ideals, the the agenda of those groups are very different, and and it's evident in the in the type of text that they produce. Um, and so, what, what I want to us to attend to is to see that those are different social worlds. The social world of the scribes is about. Uh, is, is a commitment to a certain um, quality control of transmitting the scriptures, and then the the oral um, helps and the mnemonics and rules that are uh, facilitating that that preservation of the text. Okay, so they're not, so they're not there to interpret it for everybody. Sure. So what do we, so what do we see then? Do you? I mean, what, it seems like. Uh, let me see if I can recap what you're saying then. Um, it seems like we don't have specific reference, at least not from what we've seen so far within the various texts that you've shown. It doesn't seem as though we have specific reference to a virgin birth of the Messiah. However, it seems like what you're saying is, at least in what I'm hearing you say, is that we have response from the rabbis to the idea of this being a virgin birth, meaning a virgin birth. Which would imply right. that there is some debate going on over it, correct? 
Yes, and that's what we got a little bit. If uh, so, just to, to, to go back up to a higher viewpoint. Okay, so we just spent a couple minutes talking about just the scribes. That's one stream of tradition. Another separate stream of tradition is the one that is taking the that's what we, what we saw in the Babylonian Talmud, taking uh, this word that has that uh, uh, Bay that looks like one word. But disregarding what the scribes are saying, disregarding the Masora that says it's two words, just read it as one. They're not the the um, midrash that we find in the Talmud is not interested in that Masoretic fact. They're not taking the scribes there as having authority. They're saying no, this has this has significance about the Messiah. We have to. There's a there's a midrashic reason. There's a cosmic reason. For this closed mem, that if you go back over and just were in the scribal school, they're like, no, it's two words, read as one, move on, next word. But the scribe, the Pharisees, on the other hand, or which really not the Pharisees now, they're the rabbis, but they're kind of heirs in some respects of that trajectory. They're saying, oh, there's all sorts of significance here. It has to do with the Messiah, but it has the Messiah that they're associated with is is Hezekiah. Is that? Uh, the Holy One, as we read, was going to ordain Hezekiah, the Mashiach, but there was protest because King David had done all these songs and everything, and he wasn't Messiah. Why would Hezekiah, who hasn't written any songs, be Messiah? And so it says that God closed this mem to be si- to remain silent uh, about uh, the secret of the of the Messiah. So we do have in the Babylonian Talmud admittedly redacted, you know, late, I, I, you know, I would sure. say six, seven hundreds. Um, and, and we don't see that Midrash in any other early rabbinic text. So, you know, someone might say, oh, that goes, that's oral tradition that goes way back. No, no. It, it, um, we see other places in, like in the Jerusalem Talmud, uh, other Midrashim that mention, that cite this verse, but they just cite it as if it's just one word. It's like those are actually following the advice of the scribes. So one of the first little uh, sparks that fly is this hint of that has to do with the revelation of the Messiah, but nothing about a womb at that time. And that, that's, in our, that's in the Talmudic era. Um, there is a, what, what came clear to me over this last week, and I didn't include it here, and I'm, I might write all this into an article just... Uh, you know, is that there's a third stream. A third, so we the first stream is that of the scribes. Nothing to see here. Two words, read it as one. The other stream is the, that of the Talmudic rabbis. Oh, particularly Babylonian Talmud. Has a hint to do with the hiding of the Messiah. Uh, and then the third stream is in that Talmudic early Islam period is the letter mysticism, letter mysticism proper. And that's what we find in Sefer Yetzirah and later in the Bahir, um, which are uh, Sefer Yetzirah and then influenced a book called Habahir, where each letter of the alphabet is talked about as having certain cosmic powers. Sure. So they, they do talk about the Mem in Sefer Yetzirah in association with water, Mayim, association with a belly, uh, betten, and association with um, 
a mother being a mother letter, a letter that is a mother, along with Aleph and Shin. But nothing about a closed mem in Sefer Yetzirah. It's just letter mysticism. Hmm. It's compl- no mention of Isaiah, no mention. It's just letter mysticism kind of in, a, in its own world of, of uh, uh, mysticism. Not anything to do with the Talmud or, or what the scribes are doing. So, but, but, but what you do have then in, in the Bahir, which I think is 13th, 12th century France, southern France, Pro, uh, Provençal, is, uh, is the, uh, taking some of these and tying them together. Taking this idea that the letter Mem is like a mother and is uh, like water and s- associating that now with an open mem versus the closed mem and saying that the closed mem is can't give birth but an open mem can so now the mem is like a womb but that's not till the 12th century and then uh so that's a third trajectory that that okay, comes in wait, wait but let's talk about that for a few seconds because that's really what i think and this is essentially where the art where my argument probably you know i had heard this uh form of argument before uh, obviously um but this this is kind of then what I, what I would try to focus on. If the rabbis are saying that the womb, that this is somehow related to the Messiah, whatever that might be throughout the, the history. Early Kabbalists. Cob- okay. Uh, and, and then and you, the reason why rabbi is too general of a term to use at this point, because sure. we're talking about different social groups. Okay, but still, okay, then the Kabbalists in the 12th century, they're saying, well— it relates to the Messiah, and it relates to a closed. At least some are saying it relates to a closed room, womb, right? So, in, well, in a, particularly, specifically, it says a clo- uh, The Bahir says a closed mem cannot give birth. That it's actually like a male, though. There, it's associated with the male. That it, only an open mem can give birth. So, I guess what I guess but what still, I'm, they're not quoting Isaiah at that time. It's still in the theory of letter mysticism. I see. Okay. Okay. Because they're, okay. they're talking about they go letter by letter and talk about each letter of the alphabet. So then later, is there any is there any time later after that then where they actually do equate a virgin or a closed womb and the Messiah to Isaiah nine seven? I mean, let's Only, get down to the meat of it. Yeah. This is this is the bottom of page four. Then on our, on our handout, Yosef uh, Kaspi, he's all he's in thirteenth early fourteenth century. Uh, province, which is southern France, and he is, he, like I say here, he, he writes quite a bit, but he cites Ibn Ezra. He uh, says that the Hebrew language, which he calls Yehudit, he doesn't call it Ivrit, he calls it Yeh- Jewish, he calls it Jewish, the Jewish language over Greek, Arabic, all other languages. He says Ha'alma, bat, referring back to chapter 7 of Isaiah, does not mean Virgo does not mean virgin. Um, and he says, now in the Hebrew, I didn't translate, uh, it said it would have been more fitting for, the, if, in other words, uh, what Cosby wants to say here is that if the scribes really wanted to encode the idea that the virgin had a closed womb, they would have closed the mem in the word ha'alma. That's what he's saying. His argument, now this is a person in the 14th century, he's saying Ha'alma would have the closed mem. It says, Im haya, uh, uh, If that 
the prophet had intended this, that he's saying Isaiah even. So he's associating the closed mem with Isaiah. Um, but yet it is clearly open. In other words, he's saying that the word Alma does not have a closed mem. Um, it does not. And then he says, la it, The Marbe, the closed mem in Marbe, does not hint at the woman. Rak oto zahar, but rather to the male, as it is said. You got to pull your mic back, man. You were you were overdriving. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, there you go. Good. Yeah, it, I guess I had the link, the gain up too high, but anyway, he's saying it's the that it is to the people of Israel that would be born, and then he says, and I think we we kind of ended here last week. It says, "Ve'im uh, um, and if the the men of the great assembly, asuze hashanui ba'ot hazot, if they um, made this change in this letter, um, to 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 cause us to be aware of this matter, in other words, um, that it's a warning that the closed mem is." a warning for Jews of later times to not accept the doctrine of the virgin birth. So, so he, so now we know, so now we know that this is something that, that somebody has, has, uh, yes. they're, they're at Someone least talking has, about. Exactly. And that's the, that's the thing that we need to find. And then, so if anybody finds that, please, uh, show me kindness and send it to me. I, I would like <laughs> to see, uh, uh, that's really what we see is someone, we see half the conversation here. We see half the mm-hmm. phone call. Someone in Cosby's world who is aware of the Masoretic tradition, they're aware of the closed mem, they're arguing that it points to the virgin. All we're seeing is his reaction saying, no, it, it cannot. It refers, but he does say it has significance. It refers to the yeah. male. And of course, he can't go against, because we already saw other uh, David Kimchi already said it's a hint towards Messiah, plus the Talmud already said it's a hint towards Messiah. So Cosby cannot uh, unshackle himself from this idea that it has to do with the Messiah, but now he's quibbling over whether it has to do with the virgin womb or the son that was to be born. He says it's the son that was to be born, but it's the people. It's not a, a certain individual. So that's kind of where we are left there. Sometime by the 14th century, that argument had been made Again, we don't have it that uh, the closed men referred to the virgin, but I don't know the source for that. Uh, the last page is, and that's kind of where we wrapped up last week. The last page is in the Kabbalist uh, world, um, and we can just quickly go through that. Um, uh, we look at first from the, we already talked a little bit about the Bahir, which doesn't associate the Mem the closed mem with Isaiah. We don't have that association in the book, but here we just have the letter mysticism generally where the mem is talked about just like every other letter is talked about. Um, but, but what the Bahir does, and I don't have it here on this handout, but is that it does say that there is significance to the closed mem that it's unable to give birth like an open mem. So the, all the materials there, it's convenient to have, you know, at this time, 12th, 13th, 14th century, uh, to talk about this closed sure. mem in terms of uh, both the Messiah and the virgin birth. Um, in, 
in the Zohar, we read a few things, like the first one here. It says, uh, Rabbi Shimon says, an olive has the depth of a well, all pools uh, or blessing, you can translate it as pool, pools or blessings, flow out uh, and go out from there and are found. So the olive is like a deep well. An open mem is a stream that is drawn and goes out, and it is called mem. Uh, and this is a mystery that we teach, an open mem and a closed mem, as we have proved uh, Lemarbe HaMisra. So they, here we have the Zohar citing, and this is the earliest I can find, where you have a, an explicit Kabbalistic text that associates open and closed mem, probably taken from the Bahir in the general letter mysticism, and associated now to Isaiah 9. But, but we're not, the Zohar doesn't go in any more detail at this location. It's, that's all it says. So they're thinking about it. Again, this is another little register. Then uh, uh, what Boaz Hus d dates to the early 14th century is another Zoharic text, but it's a separate author, uh, Tikkune Zohar. Pertaining to the closed mem, it is a large mem from Lemarbe HaMisra, from Isaiah 9-6. But, but look, nothing about the Messiah. It says it was made a ring. And on account of it, it is said to the bride. That means the the husband-to-be says to the wife-to-be, be sanctified unto me by this ring, which is a mem. So now they're looking at it not as a womb, but as a uh, a symbol. As a ring, yeah. An unending, unfinished band. Like, right, you know, it, uh, with the finger that, uh, and you know, made so that a finger will go into it. But And then it just comments on its color. And it's not white, not red, not black, not green, no color at all. But when it is stretched forth into the light, it is made of colors like light. So the idea is this ideal wedding ring um, that is being alluded to here. So, you know, that's all we get. Uh, and then it, it says, Sfarim uh, Acharim, other books, which we, we don't know, but this is still in Tikkune HaZohar. Lemar Bey in Gematria is Ezer, Ayin Zion Reish, which is help, or Zerah, seed, Zion Reish, Ayin, right? Same three letters, just rearranged, which is 277. In that palace, a seed of seeds for its repair. So uh, so it's talking about, if we remember uh, what we also saw in David Kimchi, the idea that um, the closed mem was a repairing of the walls of Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. he, the Zohar seems to be alluding to the same Midrashic tradition. And then the next word, Hamisra in Gematria, is the letters of Tikkun, Tav Kuf Nun, uh, which is 550. Um, and this is the Mamrabati, it says. So the idea of the Tikkun is the repair, the repair of, of the palace is encoded through the number, the numerology of this passage. So just kind of another strange interpretation, nothing explicitly about but, the Messiah. But basically which, what, what you're getting at is that basically even in, they, they never go back to a virgin birth. Yeah. Well, I'm again, these are just selections that I could find. Um, as, as you go past it, like the Shela, Isaiah Horowitz and beyond, you know, there's probably a lot of uh, Kabbalists that have written on this and unpacked, and some of them, I'm sure, have gone back and taken this idea of, of womb, uh, you know, the virgin womb, etc. But it seems like Yosef Kaspi is the earliest who really seems to tie all these together and then reject the idea. In a nutshell, just to finish off what 
uh, Isaiah Horowitz. He's uh, 16th and early 17th century Prague. Hashela, uh, uh, because he's a Shnei Luchot Habrit. That's a book he wrote, the two tablets of the covenant. And so they call him the acronym of that. Uh, Shnei Luchot Habrit is Shin Lamid Hey. Um, but he basically says that the bet, and it's kind of strange, the Hebrew is is fairly, is not too hard, but he, he says, he's talking about a sukkah dirat arai. So a sukkah is a temporary dwelling. And so a temporary dwelling does not need a mezuzah, right? Only a house, only a, 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 a dirat kavua, he calls it, a fixed dwelling is obligated to have a mezuzah. And he associates this with when you have poor in the land. So he says this is as lo yichdel evyon mekerav in Deuteronomy, where it says the evyon will not cease in the land. That means the poor are associated with temporary dwellings, right? There's, but yet, the, but yet, uh, it says in Proverbs, he says, b'chokma yibanei bayit by by how uh, by wisdom a house is built. So, and then he associates this with the Targum of Genesis 1 that says, in the, translates Be-Reshit as Be-Chokhmah, in wis, with wisdom, God created the heaven and earth. And that the first word of the Torah is a bet, and it's a, a bet rabati, it's a giant bet, which is a house. So he gets into this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. word picture. The idea of the bet is a house, therefore requires a mezuzah. It's a fixed dwelling. But it's a dwelling of the house of God, is what he wants to say. The problem is, as long as there's poor people living in temporary dwellings, you, uh, the word is not fulfilled. Redemption has not fully happened. And he says that what happens is that, that the closed mem, and uh, I'm I'm summarizing what's here in the Hebrew, that at the he basically says that the mem is cl- the bet of Bereshit is made into the closed mem of Lemar Bay Hamisra. So another when you when you see that mem, the closed mem, what Horowitz is saying is that that's the bet of Bereshit being closed off until redemption. It's the bet because you know a bet if you kind of squint and you add another line, you can change a bet into a mem sofit. And that's what he says. And in the middle he says ki ein geula ela im kenya asu teshuva gemura, which means there is no redemption unless they may, unless all people basically, unless they make complete teshuva, complete repentance. And only then will prayer be, will have merit. But the point, okay, hang on just a second. I feel okay, like, so, I feel like we're way off track now because it, basically. It is, it is off track. It just shows, I mean, we're just talking about what a Kabbalist does with this. Um, he's associating the mem with a mystery towards the end of the world where everybody will come to repentance. And this is the kicker, though. He quotes Isaiah uh, 56. He says, And I will cause them to rejoice in my house of prayer, in my bet, in my bayat. And he says, he's saying, in my letter bet, basically. So this is where all the world will become to redemption in the house of prayer. Of course, that's the scripture Yeshua cites when he's knocking over the 
money changing table. So he's saying that this is a house of prayer for all people, and you've made it a den of thieves, den of robbers. Um, in a way, Horowitz is actually saying things that uh, sound close to what Yeshua is saying. That that Horowitz is saying that um, the knowledge of God will increase in the world, and there will be complete redemption. And everybody will live in a will dwell in the the true house. But he's still no not saying anything. But he's not saying anything about a virgin birth, right? Correct. Correct. It's 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 just it's just re- ultimate a hint towards ultimate redemption. So that and you know what, if, you, if people want to continue looking, you can look at newer Kabbalists that are doing this. But but what we see here is we we've scanned at least fifteen hundred years plus of Jewish texts dealing with this verse and you go back to the core none of the second temple witnesses they all treat it like one word and they're not making a big deal out of it right um it just means of the increase of his government right it, it doesn't have any special there's no midrash going on or anything like that we have the witness from qumran um, so all this stuff that comes later is is imagined, but it's not so simple. So if someone says, oh, it, that refers to the virgin womb, well, there's a, what we've done here is we've taken a few hours last week and, and today to just say, look, there's a complicated history here of interpretation. It depends on which Jews you're asking at what time in history, um, and you get very different imaginative pictures of what it means. All right. If you want to uh, look at Rob's uh, PDF, you can do so by going to our Facebook page. It's also up on TorahResource.com. It's also in your show notes. So he has laid out this walk through history in this PDF, and you can find it in multiple different places. You can also find it on the Torah Resource Robin Caleb Show page. You can find that by going to TorahResource.com and hovering over the radio drop down and go down to Robin Caleb. And yeah, so uh, anything else that you want to say before we get going? Yeah, I know yeah. it's almost eleven o'clock here. One one last <clears throat> thing, the re- why do you know? For some people, really dig this kind of thing. Other people are like, okay, I don't really care, or it's too dry. What the reason why this is uh, an important approach from my perspective is that we need to do our best to try to understand context. That you can't take a it's kind of like fake news, right? If I take, let's say all I read was, uh, you know, Tikkun Zohar's reading of Lemar Bay, and I just then I just then say, oh, that just must be what it means. And then I go around and I start talking to people that that's what it means. See, I'm actually I'm, glad I'm actually glad you said that because I feel like that's kind of what some of the people in the Hebrew Roots movement are doing with the chronology, like. I'm not trying to be dogmatic, like, oh, you have to believe this, or you have to believe that. But what I see with some of the people in the Hebrew Roots movement who automatically take the Johannian uh, chronology, it seems to me like they just really have, you know, it's a huge issue. It's not just a, it's not this small little, it's not this small little like uh, thing that like, oh, yeah, it's obvious. Here's here's the, you know, like, I don't know, uh, you know, all, all the people that I've seen, they've described it in just a meme or, you know, a five minute video or something like that. There's like a huge corpus of literature on this. There's books and books. I mean, just look 
look at my desk right now. There's books and books and books and books that have been written on the various chronologies of the passion and why certain ones don't work and whatnot. And actually, I think that, I mean, uh, Dr. Craig Keener, uh, I'm not sure what he takes now, but in, when he wrote his John commentary, it seems as though he was taking a, a Johannian uh, chronology, uh, chronology as well. However, at least he was trying to deal with the the what seemed to be contradictory accounts in the Gospels. I don't see that in the Hebrew roots. What they're doing is they're just accepting one of the chronologies and then not dealing with... But there... Okay, but to that point, there is a... a from the publisher's perspective, the publishers kind of t- see different... Um, different registers of communication. There's a, there's the type of book where they're going to say for popular people, you just tell them what to believe. Don't don't teach the argument. Don't teach the debate. Don't teach the intricacies of back and forth. Just tell them the way it is, and and they'll buy it. See, but okay. And then I the go- other is the the other is like the scholarly. This where they get into the weeds of the of that I- and that. Publishers I, see that as two separate types of communication. I completely agree with you, but the point is is that people who are putting themselves forward as teachers, and I'm not trying to put these teachers down. All I'm saying is is that if you're putting yourself forward as a teacher or if you're doing some kind of a, you know, to me, it, it's a little bit of a disservice by 119 Ministries to have made this meme, which is just this picture that's, you know, trying to explain a, the chronology. It It's not quite as easy as that. You know, I, I wanted to do just a cursory skim of why I believe what I believe and, uh, uh, you know, so against some of the main arguments in the beginning of my thesis. It's turned into now 13 pages, and I haven't even scratched the surface of what I'm going to have to say just to be able to lay out the basics of why I believe what I believe. You know, and yet the, and yet uh, some within within the Hebrew roots are just trying to make a picture that's this big. And, and everybody's just, oh, yeah, of course. So to me, it's the teachers that are doing the disservice because if you're going to try to teach it, at least show people there are many different ideas on this. This is why I take this one. But, you know, there's this whole corpus of work. Just like you're saying with like, you know, if you're going to say, oh, the mistake that I made, right, two two shows ago, three shows ago, when I said, well, the rabbis have taken this as a, as a virgin birth. Well, that's not exactly true now, is it? Now, I've done, now, I'm guilty of the exact same thing. In other words, I hadn't done my research to be able to tell you, well, there's, you know, throughout history, there's a huge amount of, of uh, conflicting degrees of what the rabbis say. So, I mean, maybe that's what's going right. on in the Hebrew Roots movement. Maybe that's what, you know, with the chronology. They just, they've accepted one thing and they don't think that it's a big, they don't, they don't understand that it's a big, uh, big issue. All right. Uh, well, thank you much, uh, Rob, for putting that together. It was uh, it's very enlightening. If you would like to uh, comment on it, please do so. You can do that by giving us a call. Our comment line is just a message machine. You won't be talking to either of us, so that might entice people more to call in. 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. Uh, don't forget, you can go to my uh, my Twitter account right now, at Caleb Hegg. There is a, uh, a survey up there on uh, if you think a retrial of Yeshua by Orthodox rabbis in Israel is a good idea. Let, let us know what you think. We'll tell you the results next week on our show. Um, and I'm not sure. I think we'll probably get back to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. That, I think that's the last part of that article in Aish. And then we'll uh, probably start off on something new. 
And uh, yeah, send us send us your comments, send us your show ideas. Seahag at torahresource.com. That's seahag at torahresource.com. And remember the one thing that we ultimately are trying to do is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Mm-hmm.